It's been a little over a year now since we last heard from Paul. I know it seems like just a few days. But between the first and the second letter here that we have, between what we call first and second Corinthians, about a year, maybe a year and a half has gone by. Paul is now writing back to Corinth again. And in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not pivot. Because truth and love do not pivot. Pivot? To pivot is to effectively change the conversation. Things aren't going well for you this way, you pivot and try and make it go a different direction. It's to divert the damaging press that has happened. And so you pivot. Create a new conversation. It's, it's really, it's politics. It's dancing around reality in a political two-step. But you need to understand tonight that the Apostle Paul does not pivot. Because truth does not pivot. Love does not pivot. Paul now comes right back to the church at Corinth, bringing the truth with great love. He he deals with it head on. He doesn't change the conversation because it's uncomfortable or difficult. He comes right back at it. And why? Because he loves the church at Corinth too much to do anything else. We're about to dive into what some have called Paul's most personal letter. I would say with the exception of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's swan song, his letter right at the end of his life as he recognizes he's staring down his exit, his departure from this world. But 2 Corinthians, we hear more of Paul's heart. We truly see a pastor's heart in this letter. But he's a pastor who refuses to sidestep the issues. Thank you, Lord, for pastors and shepherds and teachers who don't sidestep the truth. It is these who have changed my life, who have determined to speak the truth, as the Bible says, in love. Now Paul's relationship with Corinth, as you know, we've already waded through the first letter, 1 Corinthians, and his relationship was sometimes contentious, it was often challenged, it was always compassionate. And we truly see the heart of a pastor. And this is the kind of heart, by the way, that comes from someone who has been with Jesus. The ability of the Apostle Paul to love in the way he does comes directly from having been with Jesus. Remember, Paul founded the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey, probably about 51 A.D. So not even 30 years after Jesus resurrected and ascended. Starts the church in Corinth, and 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus probably about 54 A.D. And this letter that we have now, 2 Corinthians, arrived about a year and a half later in 56 A.D. Because of the internal evidence in these two letters, this is probably Paul's fourth letter to Corinth. The very first letter we don't have. 
And, and the third letter was not preserved either. What we call 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and what we call 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians. You got it? That there were four different letters, again, based on what Paul tells us. Here's the interesting thing to me. The first letter and the third letter were not considered by God to be worthy of preservation. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are inspired scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired these words, determined for us to have these words, even now, 2,000 years later, to study. The first and third letter, not so much. And yet Paul refers to both of them, so we know that they existed. One more thing. As we'll see, in between what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul apparently paid a painful visit to Corinth and then sent a painful letter to the church of Corinth as well. So in the last year and a half between these two letters, Paul went to Corinth and it was not good. It was sorrowful. It was serious. It was difficult, and Paul knew it. And as you'll see when we go further on, because of that, Paul, though he had determined to come back to them again, had not yet come back when he wrote this letter. So he went to Corinth. It was difficult. He then would later write a letter to Corinth that was also painful. And now we're picking up this letter. How do we know all this? Well, let me give you a couple examples. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1... Paul says, For I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. I'm not going to come to you in sorrow again. That that was tough enough the last time. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Why write in tears? Why the painful visit? Why even go there, Paul? Because love and truth do not pivot. Because the truth comes straight at you. Because love will not let you go. And as we move through this, consider the balance of those two things, truth and love, in this fellowship. And think about perhaps how you're doing in your own life. Speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, can be painful. The question is, do we love enough to speak the truth? So back to chapter 1. Again, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy now is with Paul, probably helping scribe this letter. First Corinthians, you may recall the name Sosthenes, was the one there with Paul, probably the scribe of First Corinthians. And then when we studied Romans, uh, Tertius would be the scribe who helped Paul write the book of Romans. Why? Well, probably because of Paul's vision issues. We can't say absolutely for sure, but it looks as though Paul had vision problems, couldn't see as well, and so he always had people helping write out his letters. Timothy is here with Paul now. Timothy, Paul's beloved son. We'll talk more about him perhaps further on in our studies. And the recipients are not only the church at Corinth, but also with all the saints, he says, who are throughout Achaia. What's Achaia? Well, Achaia is Corinth. It's King Crea on the coast. It's the entire Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's all of southern Greece. It's that whole region. So we know that Paul intends this letter to be sent and to be read among all the churches. 
Maybe that's why we have this one. And why we have 1 Corinthians, because these are letters that were intended to be circulated. Whereas the other two maybe were a little more pointed and personal just for Corinth itself. I don't know, but we know this is going out, and clearly the Lord desires it to be sent, desires it to be circulated, even as the church itself is spreading and growing. And Paul's usual greeting here, verse 2, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace, the Greek word charis. Peace, the Hebrew shalom. Paul always begins his letters with the Greek charis and the Hebrew shalom. He's covering both bases. He's reaching out to both peoples. Verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul's Jewish background flows in what we could call his redeemed language. What Paul writes here, what Paul says here, this is an opening benediction, and verses 3 through 7 appears to be, among those who have studied these things, it appears to be a revised statement of a Jewish prayer. What we pick up here, it's interesting to me, the prayer is among 18 blessings called the Amidah. The Amidah, that is also called the Shemona Esrei. The Shemona Esrei, which in Hebrew is 8 plus 10. The 8 plus 10, the 18. Because originally there was a a blessing of 18, or a prayer of 18 blessings. Nowadays it's 19 because they divided number 15. Uh, Those of you who are interested in that kind of thing, I don't know. But this Shemona Esrei, the 8 plus 10 was prayed as a synagogue benediction at morning, noon, and evening prayers every day in the synagogues, going all the way at least back to A.D. 70. And you can read this. You can read this, the Amidah. If you you look it up just online, the Amidah, you can read each one of these blessings. Compare the first blessing of the Amidah to what Paul writes in verses 3 through 7, and you have a very close comparison. So Paul's ripping off a Jewish prayer? No, Paul is inspired by his heredity, by his ancestry, and by the truth. And that comes out now in this letter. And by the way, the Amidah, this morning, noon, and evening prayer, may very well have been practiced as far back as 500 B.C. in the days of Daniel. Some of you may recall Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. In his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. And some think perhaps this is what Daniel prayed. Or a variation of it. What do you mean a variation? Well, the first prayer of the Amidah begins like this. Blessed art thou, our Lord, O Lord our God, and God of our fathers. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and then it continues on. Notice how Paul begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a redeemed prayer. Jesus has gotten into the Jewish prayer. And this will be Paul's focus, and he will say often, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than the God who is the God of our fathers, he draws Jesus in. Who, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who, verse 4, comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are of our comfort. Where do you think Paul's going in this letter? Comfort. This is a letter of comfort. If 1 Corinthians was a letter of, of contesting what they were doing, if it was a letter of conflict, if it was a letter of challenge, this is a letter of comfort. The word comfort here is paraklesis. That's the noun form. Comfort, paraklesis. The verb form is parakleo. And it means comfort or consolation or encouragement. Paul uses the word or variants of the word comfort more than 30 times in this letter, more than in any other letter that he writes. So it's clear to see what is on the heart of Paul. He wants to comfort the people of Corinth and throughout Achaia. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul will come concluding the letter by writing, Finally, brethren, rejoice and be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I began reading through this, these first few verses, this benediction of comfort, and I realized how similar it is to the book of comfort, or the book of consolations, as it's sometimes called. It picks up in Isaiah chapter 40 and runs all the way through the end of the book of Isaiah. It's called the book of consolations and begins Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then he says this. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And so... A voice came in the wilderness, didn't it? voice of John the Baptist clearing the way for comfort personified in Jesus Christ. And I will say to you this, if you do not have Christ, you will not know comfort. If you want to know comfort and encouragement and consolation, it is only truly found in Jesus Christ. Every other kind of worldly comfort is fleeting. It will not last. But comfort in Jesus is eternal. And as Isaiah said, comfort, oh comfort my people, the Lord, through Isaiah. And then all of a sudden he's talking about John the Baptist. It makes sense because comfort comes in the person of Jesus. And that's all I'm going to say about the benediction. We're going to come back to it and unpack it more on Sunday morning. But let's continue on in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves ever feel that way Hayden came home from work yesterday worked a 10 hour day which is new for Hayden came in the door looked at Cheryl looked at me and said can I just die (laughs) I said no can I just die? Have you ever had a day like that where at the end of the day all you want to do is kick the shoes off and crash? You don't even care if you make it to the bed. 
just find me a soft piece of carpet somewhere. I'm going down. I've had enough. Have you ever just felt afflicted or burdened or despairing? Been in that place where it just doesn't seem like you're going to be able to get back out. Let me tell you all something. Few people have ever suffered for their faith the way Paul did. Few have experienced the burden that the Apostle Paul experienced in his life and in his ministry. Remember this in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 31. He wrote, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. That's what I should have told Hayden. You feel like dying? Paul died every day. I die daily, he says. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Ah, but Paul knew. He knew as he had previously written that the dead are raised. You realize resurrection, while it is an absolutely tangible, physical, actual thing that will happen for all of us, it is coming as we talked about on Sunday, resurrection for a Christian also happens spiritually on a daily basis. Every time I die to self, I'm resurrected to Jesus. Every time life is despairing, I find that I can be resurrected to hope. Every time I'm hurt by some unforeseen circumstance, I find myself living again. I find myself resurrected again. I find myself saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. Because we are a people of resurrection. Verse 9, continuing on, Paul says, So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. And while the prayers of is italicized, he is referring to prayers there. And people are praying for us. And through those prayers, we are resurrecting. We die daily, but we're prayed for constantly, and so we resurrect constantly. That the death we die, it's alright. It's okay. By the way, Paul may also be borrowing from the second blessing of the Amidah right here in this section. Or at least thinking about it because the second blessing of that Hebrew prayer says, Lord, You are mighty, making the dead alive. You are mighty to help, sustaining the living out of grace, making the dead alive out of great mercy, supporting those who fall, healing the sick, freeing the captive, keeping Your Word to them who sleep in the dust. That's a very Jewish prayer, but it sounds awfully messianic to me. I mean, the things that are prayed there. By the way, Paul knew Jesus was the Mashiach of Israel. Paul saw the Messiah in all these things. He knew from whence his comfort came. That the prayers of the many were calling on the comfort of the one of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this, Here was a man who never knew but what he might be dead the next day. For his enemies were many and cruel and mighty. 
And yet he spent a great part of his time in praising and blessing God. That's what Paul does here. He's talking about how they despaired even of life, and then he goes right on praising the Lord, on whom he says we have set our hope. He is constantly in this place of worship. It seems like often out of nowhere, Paul starts to praise God in all of his letters. Have you noticed that? He'll just bust into a benediction. He'll just punch out a prayer. He praises often. And it's the best way to deal with a bad day, folks. Absolute best thing you can do, praise God. Having a dark time? Praise the Lord. Depressed, despairing? Worship God. Try this one on for size. Psalm 103, verse 1. In fact, if you ever just need to be uplifted, turn to Psalm 103 and read through the whole psalm. Here's five verses for a flavor of it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with grace and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You cannot read those five verses and be dour and glum and eeyore. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. And so Paul does. And it seems that no matter how bad it gets in the life of the apostle, he blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. doesn't matter what his afflictions are, his burdens, his challenges. He blesses the Lord and, and Paul always sees great opportunity. Now, I say Paul, really it's the Lord in Paul. I don't want to overestimate Paul as a man. He was just a man, just like you, just like me. There was no difference. Other than, as I share with our staff today, Paul did seem to walk on a different plane. He really did. I'm not saying he was Mr. Holy, Mr. Sanctified. He called himself the chiefest of all sinners. But Paul had this this focus that was so intense, he seemed to be right up here all the time. Always turning to the Lord. Calling out to the Lord. Praising the Lord. And focused on the things of the Lord. And so even in affliction, even in conflict, even in opposition, he saw opportunity. And we talked about that last week. In opposition, there was opportunity. It's always that way with Paul. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, from the last letter. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, because everyone's accepting me and it's all a party here. No. What he says is, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And again, we talked about this last week, but that's when I tend to turn around and go the other way. Oh, there's an adversary? There's a roadblock? There's a difficulty? Well, then God obviously doesn't want us to do it. Hey, sometimes opposition is opportunity. Sometimes He's calling on us to drive right into it. To turn the ship into the storm. To deal with the opposition as it comes up. And Paul says, I'm I'm so excited here in Ephesus. We have this amazing door opening up because there's all kinds of adversaries. I got problems here. Isn't that great? Now Jesus can really do something. 
I love that mentality. Where I would think many adversaries would make us shut the door, Paul sees an open door. And Hebrews 10.39 tells us we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. You want to kill faith fast? Back away every time it gets difficult. Just, Just slink off somewhere safe every time it gets hard to believe. Hide away. You'll kill a faith dead faster than anything else. You want to see faith grow and be strong and vibrant? You head into the storm. You accept the difficulties and the oppositions as opportunity. Just as Paul does. What does Paul see opportunity to do? A couple of things here to note. Number one, Paul sees opportunity to trust God over self. Look again at verse 9. He says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Are you despairing in your own life? Trust in the Lord. Stop trusting in yourself. Because as we trust in self to try to accomplish it, to try to get through, well, we despair. But there's opportunity to trust God over self. Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust the Lord. With all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. He'll see you through the storm. Isaiah 26, verse 3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, or shalom, shalom. Right, Glenn? It's one of Glenn's favorites. He will keep in shalom, shalom, because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. Listen, in quietness and trust is your strength. Trust the Lord. Paul, in the face of opposition, saw opportunity to trust God over himself. And secondly, he saw opportunity to tell of the gospel over self-help. To to bring the word of God. Look at verse 10. He says, Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Note that, not only did he deliver us, Paul says, but he will yet deliver us. Isn't that the gospel? That you have been delivered? When you give your life to Jesus, deliverance is instantaneous. The old self dies, the new self comes. Deliverance, I've been delivered, and I will be delivered. I've been saved and I will be saved. That day is coming of my ultimate and final deliverance, but I've been delivered actually multiple times throughout my life. And that's the gospel and that's our opportunity. He delivered and He will deliver. Tell people that. I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ delivered me from myself and because He's going to deliver me from everything else. That's the promise. What a great Piece of good news. It's the promise of deliverance. That is the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about deliverance. And it's not just deliverance from bygone bummers or present day problems. The deliverance is a deliverance to Jesus. Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, why do we fret? Why do we worry? Why do we stress when we know that we have been delivered and we will be delivered? It's good news. And it is our news to share. Paul says, man, when, when times get hard, I can trust God over myself. Isn't that great? And I can tell the gospel. Even as I move through these hard times, people say, how can you be moving through this? Hey, I got good news. I'm about to be delivered again. And this is the attitude of the heart of the Apostle Paul. Well, verse 12. He says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, let's figure this out. Understand this a bit. Paul says, we walk with proud confidence. Proud confidence. Literally, heads held high right up to the day of Jesus. What a day that will be. But Paul says right now, until he comes, we're walking with heads held high. The phrase, proud confidence, is kalchesis in the Greek. I love the word because you've got to flim up a little bit to say it. Kalchesis literally means, it literally comes from the word alchen, which means the neck. And the idea is of someone who's, who's proud, who has confidence, it's heads up. Heads held high. Man, things are looking up. It's like Jesus said in Luke 21, 28. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. By the way, the things that Jesus says are about to take place, so lift up your heads, redemption is drawing near, those things are all difficult things. Speaking to Israel of tribulational things. And he says, man, when it begins to get bad, lift up your heads. When it gets hard, heads up. Hey, Christians in the church in America, when things start to go down, look up. You have proud confidence in the Lord and in each other. Proud confidence. I love the phrase. Paul says we can look up because... Three things, because first of all, we conducted ourselves with saintly sincerity. Note that. He says, in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom. And so we we have heads held high in these things. Saintly is easy, or holy is easy, that's saintly, it's hagiotes. You Bible students have heard the word, you may recall the word hagios. Hagios, anytime you see the word saints in the New Testament, or holy ones... It's hagios. And so Paul says that's kind of how we've been. We, we were holy. We were hagiotes, saintly, sanctified. But he says, and we had godly sincerity, hotheos, helikrinia. Now I'm throwing out, I know some Greek words here. It doesn't matter if you get the Greek word. I, I mainly throw those out to impress you. Really, more than anything else. I'm kidding. No, the words are significant. Helikrinia, heli from helios which means the light or the warmth of the sun, and 
Krenia comes from krino, which means judgment. So when he says, we moved in holiness, we were saintly, we were uh, God's holy ones, and godly sincerity, godly sincerity is literally, we moved being judged in full daylight. Our sincerity made our ministry obvious. There was nothing hidden. There was nothing surreptitious about what we did. You knew it all. You saw it all. We moved in full daylight. That's the sincerity that Paul is talking about. I love that sincerity. It's the same as John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What does that mean, John? Do you walk with hidden things? Are you holding stuff back? Are you living with a mask? Is half your life in the light and half in the dark? And are there things that you're holding to self because, wow, I just can't, I can't let that stuff out. I can't really be honest and real and authentic. That's walking in the dark. You can't walk in the dark and be of Jesus. Paul or John writes, if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Paul says, yeah, we came in holiness and godly walking in the daylight. Godly judgment in the full light and warmth of the sun. No pivoting. Do you understand now where I'm getting, where I'm going with this whole pivot thing? That to pivot is to deceive. To pivot is to jump off of one bad situation and try and change the conversation to another. Paul doesn't do that. He could, with the mess that he was dealing with at Corinth, he could just change the conversation. He could become ultra-tolerant of everything going on there and go, oh, well, as long as there's a church there, we're cool. Or on the other hand, he could come down super hard in a different direction and just judge everybody. But Paul refuses to do that. Paul goes straight at them with truth and with love, conducting ourselves, he says, with holy sincerity. Secondly, Paul can look up because he says we conducted ourselves with saintly authenticity. Look at verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. What we wrote you is the deal. This is the plain truth. There's not some secret book that we're going to spring on. We're going to pop out the Book of Mormon on you and surprise you with a new teaching. No, this is it. What we said is what we meant, and what we meant is what we said. Saintly authenticity, it is what it is. I love that about Christianity. That's the way it's supposed to be. Just straightforward. No hidden agendas. No playing games. No secretive schemes. No bait and switch to get people into the church. Why do churches do that, Susie? I don't know. Sometimes they do. Perhaps you've seen that. We, we try to use trick advertising or... Or, or a special program that can, if we can just get them in the door, you know, and then we'll spring on them what it's really about. No, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is what it is. We walk it out in the light. We have full disclosure. There's no hiding anything. Jesus is Jesus. He's going to save us. We love Him and that's the deal. It's simple. It's straightforward. It is authentic. And Paul will close out chapter 2 when eventually we get there sometime around midnight. He says, we are not like many peddling the Word of God, selling it, retailing it. No, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So again, 
There's no manipulation, no false spirituality, just being who we are in Christ, saying what we mean and meaning what we say, and the Word of God does that. And Paul says that's what we've been doing. We conducted ourselves with saintly sincerity, with saintly authenticity, and finally, we conducted ourselves with saintly congeniality. Look at verse 14 again. He says, just as also you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, heads up, we have proud confidence in you, just as you have proud confidence in us. And this isn't like a a sinful pride. This is, man, I am proud of my church fellowship. Can you say that? Yeah. I'm proud of my church. I'm proud of my of my Christian family. I'm proud of my brothers and sisters. Can you say? Yes. Can you say I'm proud of the church in this area? How about I am so proud of the church in Washington State. Man, I got heads up for the church throughout this nation. I'm so proud of the church in this world. Let me encourage you if you have trouble saying that that I think we need to lift up our heads a little bit more and be a little more proud of the church. I think that's okay. I know that I have been one to on occasion bring up the dark places in the church and we and we talk about the reality because again, we're authentic and we're going to deal with what we have to deal with. But how often do we speak proudly of another church? How often do we get excited about another group of Christians starting up somewhere? Or or do we rejoice in the success and in the godliness of Christians outside our fellowship? Or have you ever found yourself gleeful that a particular church is going down? You don't have to raise a hand or confess to that one. But I will. Yes, friends, there have been times in my life where a church fellowship that I personally had issue, none, none around here, none recently, and I, I can say that with honesty, but in the past, where maybe a competing church was having a hard time and not doing so well, and my flesh went, ha, yeah, yeah. I knew we were the better church. We're still here. What's up? You know. <laughs> You're all looking at me like, yeah, that's the last time I'm coming to this church. Guy's got that kind of attitude. No, there's something in the flesh that makes us competitive when when we are all the church. Man, if you're claiming Jesus Christ, we are the church. And Paul says, we have proud confidence in you, just as you have proud confidence in us. It's congenial. We're together in this. And for the Apostle Paul, fellowship was not optional. If there was ever a church that he should have cut off, it was Corinth. You want to talk about a messy group of people. If there was ever a church, he should have said, look, I just wash my hands and my feet of you. I'm done with you, Corinth. But he couldn't do that. Why? Because Corinth was the church. Just as the church in Jerusalem. Just as the church in Cancrea and the churches of Galatia. The churches throughout Asia and Ephesus and, and there in Philippi. They're all the church. How can I cut someone off who's the church? And so Paul shares this this love of of brotherhood and sisterhood, spiritual kin together belonging to Jesus. Never neglect the love of the church. Partially because it's all we got. You know? 
but also partially because the church is God's plan in this world. This is how He determined to get the message out. This is how He determined for His children until He comes to minister one to another. This is where He determined that we could come for equipping and encouragement and, yes, comfort. Man, love the church. Both our fellowship and the larger church because, I'll tell you, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all going to be together anyway. We are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What day is that? We just talked about it Sunday. That's right. The rapture of the church. The catching up. The harpazo. The raptus, if you prefer the Latin, that's okay as well. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Pretty definite. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us, And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And when that day happens, guess what? We will all be together. One church. We will finally see the church as God sees the church. And I do, and I reaffirm to you again, I love the church. I was raised in the church. And the church is filled with people who, just like me, are both godly and messy. Saintly and slummy. You know, righteous and rednecks. I just had to throw that one out there. We're all in. And Paul says, man, love everyone in. Honestly loving each other until the day of the Lord is our job. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, there's a nuance here in verse 14 that's a little problematic. You might notice he said, just as you also partially did understand us, There was not full understanding. There's still some misunderstanding between Corinth and Paul in the mix, and he's going to address that now. Verse 15. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my way to Judea. Verse 17, therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes and no, and no all at the same time? Now understand what's behind this. Paul fully intended to visit Corinth twice. He was over in Ephesus. He intended probably to sail directly across to Corinth, put in at Cancrea, walk across to Corinth, and then from Corinth to head up north through Athens on up into Macedonia. And then part of Paul's plan was to come back out of Macedonia, back down into Corinth, over to Cancrea, sail back across to Ephesus, or perhaps just sail all the way back to Judea. Here's my plan. That's what I fully intended to do. But circumstances changed. You might not think it a big deal, but remember, there was already conflict and contention between Corinth and Paul. There were already issues. Paul says, I'm going to come to you, and then I'm going to come back to you. Well, he came to them, and as I shared when we began, it was not a good time of fellowship. This was not church potluck time. This was church conflict time, and it was rough. And from there, he went on up to Macedonia and did not come back to Corinth. 
at least not before sending another letter and waiting and then sending this letter. Ultimately, Paul would come back to Corinth. In fact, the whole last end of this letter, he says over and over, I'm coming. Dad's coming home. I'm going to be there. You know, I mean, he lets them know I'm on my way. But he didn't do what he said he was going to do. And some in Corinth apparently were offended by this or using it against Paul. Paul's a flake. Paul says one thing and does another thing. You can't really trust him. He doesn't keep his word. He said he was going to come and he came and stirred it up and then he disappeared. Scaredy cat. What's the issue with Paul? And so this was going on. There was this negative talk against Paul. But listen, Paul doesn't pivot. He doesn't avoid this. He goes right into it. He deals directly with the truth. First, as he does with every opportunity, he points to Jesus and makes this point that life isn't always what we expect. But listen to what he says. Verse 18 But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our Amen to the glory of God through us. Just because things change, just because life is not what you expect, doesn't mean Jesus is indecisive. It doesn't mean that Jesus waffles. Just because your plans come apart at the seams when you thought God was in them. I mean, hey, you asked God to do what you were doing. You said, come join me in my ministry, in my life, in my ideas, in my plans. And suddenly it's not working out so well. That doesn't mean Jesus is waffling. Paul makes it absolutely clear. Where Jesus is concerned, it is yes. It's not yes and no, maybe, perhaps, possibly. It's yes in Christ Jesus. Do you ever question his faithfulness when things don't go well in your life? When the path that you set yourself out to follow starts to crumble, and you say, well, I guess God's not in this. I guess He's really not with me. I wonder if He even cares or knows that I'm here. Paul says, no. No, Jesus is yes. Meaning? Meaning He is in for you. He is all in. He has not turned His back on you. He has not offered promises that are weak and frail. Oh, we sometimes do. Not Jesus. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say He is the Amen. He is the Amen to the glory of God through us. The Amen. I love that. Amen. The word Amen was passed from the Hebrew to the Greek to the Latin to become a universal word in every language on the planet. In fact, there are two words that are universal. Amen and Hallelujah. If you're French and you want to say amen, you say amen. You know, if you happen to be Spanish and you want to say hallelujah, you say hallelujah. Those two words in every language. And the amen, what a great word. It simply means so be it. And the Jewish people in Jewish prayer in the synagogue, when the blessing was completed, the people would respond, amen. So be it. We agree. I believe it. And when we say amen, we make the substance of that prayer or that statement, we make it our own. 
Yes, this is mine. Yes, I agree. Think about that the next time you say amen. It's not like saying yours truly. It's not like signing off. It is saying I agree with what I hear. It is a statement of agreement and is a powerful one. And Paul says, that's Jesus. Because the promises of God in Jesus are good to go. Jesus makes the promises of God absolutely fulfilled. 1 John 2.24 John said, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us eternal life. So when you hear the Word, say Amen. When you hear prayer, say Amen. When you worship the Lord, follow with an Amen, I believe it, so be it, Lord. The Word is true. And by the way, the promises of God are legit. They are yes. Don't let the passage of time or the pressures of life or the problems you might face steal away the Amen of Jesus. It's not yes and no, or no and yes, or maybe, or possibly. It's yes. Paul uses this opportunity. They're saying Paul is flaky. And Paul says, before he answers that, he says, listen. First of all, understand I serve Jesus, and He ain't flaky. And Jesus isn't waffling. And in Hebrews 13, he'll write Jesus Christ the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Jesus is the Amen. Verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A pledge? What what do you mean a, a pledge? Literally, he gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. How do you know you're saved? We've asked the question many times in here. How do you know you have an inheritance? Well, God has given you a down payment, His Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 tells us His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you're you're saved? Because His Spirit tells me. I just know. I know that I know because His Spirit told me. And the Spirit is that down payment of inheritance, that promise. Ephesians 1.13, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were also sealed for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit is our down payment so that we can know when Jesus calls, we will go. Now, Paul finally comes back and explains why he had yet to return to Corinth. Remember, that was the issue. That's why he deals with this whole Jesus is yes thing. I didn't come back to Corinth. No, I didn't. And and it wasn't what you expected. But it wasn't because I was yes, yes, no, no. Listen to Paul, verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. See, it wasn't just circumstances, it was choice. Paul did not return to Corinth because he knew if he did, it would be too upsetting. It would be sorrowful. And he determined not to do that. He says, not that we lord it over your faith. In other words, not that we're all that important. That's not what I'm saying. But we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. 
But I determined, chapter 2, verse 1, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. One of the things that I admire so much about Paul is he was not planting churches for planting churches. He wasn't in it vying for a position in the papacy. He wasn't trying to establish little Pauline synagogues all throughout Asia and the Middle East. Oh, there's another Paul church. There's a church of St. Paul. I think if he heard St. Paul's Cathedral, he would throw up. Because for Paul, it wasn't about Paul. And that's not why he was doing these things. He wasn't trying to get a leg up on his legacy. Ah, one more church. All right. He's counting all the churches. Yeah, I've got 17 now and I need 8. Boy, I really want to get 25. (laughs) This will make me look good. Paul's was an others-centered mission. So he says, it's not about us lording it over you. He says, I I didn't want to hurt you. I didn't want to make you sorrowful. Again, verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For, note this, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And the intimacy of those words are stunning. That Paul the Apostle would write something like that? Do I have to prove to you how much he really loved these people? How much they truly mattered to him? It's been said, Paul's letters were written more with tears than they were with ink. He labored daily for the churches. And that's the difference. And get this. It's taken me years to understand. The difference between kingdom building and empire building. To build into the kingdom of God is to see people. To know that every church is filled with people that He loves. You know, that He who leaves the 99 to go get the one, churches are filled with the ones that He saved. And to see people, that's a kingdom building exercise. To look at a church as brothers and sisters, to get a sense of the, the people involved. Well, that's kingdom building. Uh, Empire building is to see how many buildings you can erect. How many towers you can build and put up with your name on them. That's empire building. That's leaving your mark. Kingdom building is not concerned with leaving your mark. It's concerned with the marks of Jesus Christ. Kingdom building sees people and cares for individuals and it doesn't count attendance and Crunch numbers. That's not a statement for you, Glenn. I'm not talking about finances there. But it's not counting heads as they come in the door and going, okay, all right, the more people we have here, the greater the pastor I am. No, no, that would be empire building. Paul is into kingdom building. He loves the people. He's concerned for the people, which is why he wrote to them. Verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he said... He's caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Why does it say in order not to say too much? Paul's dealing with a very sensitive issue here. 
And rather than just bandy that sensitive issue out over the whole church fellowship in Corinth, he, he just indicates, for those who knows what he's talking about, for those who know or who understand what he's talking about, he says, I don't want to say too much, but there's this individual who caused sorrow. And not so much to me, but to you. He says, sufficient for such a one, that is this, this man, this person, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Who's Paul talking about? Probably the sexually immoral man who he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go back and read that, but in those first five verses especially, he details this man who had his father's wife. And so immoral was this situation, and Corinth wasn't doing anything about it. Why? Corinth was, they were trying to be tolerant. Let it go, it's cool, just don't say anything. It's alright, just, you know, he's got his thing over there, and hey, we, we were all pagans once anyway. So they just weren't dealing with it. Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians, deal with it. You need to disassociate yourself from this guy. He's claiming to be a believer, but he's living in abject rebellion. Pull back, Paul says. But now, Paul turns around and he calls on them to forgive. Verse 9, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven... If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And this is huge. So get this. The application here for us is massive. We are not ignorant of his schemes. This whole situation, you had this immoral situation going on there in Corinth. Paul said, deal with it. You need to disfellowship, pull back from this guy because what he is doing is absolutely wrong and just tolerating it, not okay. says that in the first letter. Now a year and a half later, he says, pull him back, bring him back in. Now it's time to forgive. This has been hard enough. Forgive him and restore him. Bring the man back. And then he says, because listen, we don't want any, any advantage to be taken of us that we might be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Okay, what do you mean, Paul? Listen, first of all, he says we're not to be ignorant. Four times in his letters, perhaps a fifth, but four definite times, Paul makes a statement where he says we are not to be ignorant. First time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, talking about the resurrection of the dead and the living in Christ. That is the catching up of the church. Paul says you should not be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. And then he explains the calling home of the church. And then the second one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Going home, spiritual gifts, number three, Romans 9 through 11, specifically Romans 11 verse 25, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this, brethren, what? God's plan for Israel. Israel and the church, understanding the balance, what God's doing with both, what that's all about. That's the third thing he says. And finally, here in 2 Corinthians 
2.11, I don't want you to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Let me make sure you got all those. The resurrection of the dead and the living in Christ. Spiritual gifts. God's plan for Israel. Satan's schemes. Guess which areas are most often avoided in the church today? All four of the ones that Paul said, don't be ignorant. <laughs> yeah, but spiritual gifts. I mean, man, that gets weird. I mean, if we start to mess with that, I mean, you're just opening up a can of worms. Okay, so let's just skip 1 Corinthians and not read it at all. Resurrection of the church, the rapture, the catching up. Ah, there's, there's too many different opinions on that and views of it. Oh, okay, so let's close up 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and not deal with it there either. God's plan for Israel, eh, just, that, that's, we're, we're the church. Why, why be concerned about that? And all these things, we find ourselves ignorant, and one of the top things in the church today, especially, is ignorance of Satan's schemes. Let me make it really, really simple. Satan has a two-action playbook. He runs two plays every game. It's the same two plays. You would think that after a few games, we Seahawks would figure out the two plays and develop a healthy defense. Two, two schemes. This is it. The whole thing. And it all fits into one of these two. And usually these two working together. Ready? Temptation and accusation. That's Satan's playbook. Temptation, that is sin creeping in unchecked, luring people to that place. Matthew 4 verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5. He is called the tempter. The tempter. That is Satan's play. To put it in front of you, to make it look good, to dress it up, sweeten it up, and call you to it. The tempter. Temptation. And remarkably, his other play is accusation. Think about the hypocrisy of that. The one who tempts you is the one who accuses you. He lures you in, and then he becomes the lawyer going after you. Tempter, accuser, accusation, that is judgment bearing down unchecked. Sin creeping in unchecked, judgment bearing down unchecked, he calls you to sin and then he judges you for it. That's his playbook. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night. Temptation, accusation. He baits and he blames. He invites and he indicts. Satan just manipulates from one to the next and his whole goal is not that you enjoy the fruit of the temptation, it's that you experience the death of the accusation. Because that's his end game. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Temptation? Oh, it looks good. Accusation. How dare you? Hey, why don't you take a little puff of this? Temptation. It'll make you feel better. It'll relax you at the end of the day. And once you do, oh, sinner, said, God, did you see what he just did? Did you see what she just took? Accusation. And he plays the two back and forth and back and forth by comparison, grace and truth. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What do you want? Temptation, accusation or grace and truth? Jesus is such a dramatic contrast. In boldly addressing the issue going on at Corinth and the conflict between himself and Paul and the issue with this man, note this, rather than pivoting away from it, 
Paul was never more like Jesus. He calls out the sin of the man. Yeah, that's going on. But rather than let the judgment continue to bear down on the man, now he says, enough. Restore him. Forgive him. He has had enough sorrow. He deals with the truth and then He brings in the grace and it's both. And He is so much like Jesus. Oh, you know the story. She was caught in the act. I mean, literally caught. Sexual immorality crept in. Somehow, Satan gave her the lure and the temptation and drew her into it. But judgment came bearing down as agents of the scribes and the Pharisees pounced on her in the midst of the act, drag her into the temple courts, throw her on the ground before Jesus Christ to use her as a trap. And there in John chapter 8, I'll just read it to you. Verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And if you study this, you know they thought they had him. He either obeys the law and sees her stoned to death, or he violates the law and lets her go away free. But Jesus, as usual, outsmarts them. They were saying this, testing him so he might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. They persisted in asking him and he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Jesus did not violate the law. He straightens up says to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? You see, according to the law, if there's no one to condemn, there is no law broken. All the condemners were gone. All the witnesses were gone. Jesus Himself was not a witness. Therefore, by law, He could not accuse her. And so He he found a way to offer her the very grace that she needed. But, listen to what He says, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, I do. I know what you were doing. Now that it's just you and me, let's have it out, sister. You're done. You're fired. Clean out your locker. You're gone. No. Neither then do I condemn you. Grace. Go and sin no more. Truth. Grace and truth. I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And Jesus walked in both. Paul here, back in 2 Corinthians, is walking in both, dealing with both. And my friends, when we're talking about the schemes of the devil, nothing shuts the devil down faster than walking in grace and truth simultaneously. Grace to forgive and truth to speak of what's right. That we call each other to righteousness and to godly living. And when we mess up, when we fall apart, hey, we're there to love and restore one another, still speaking the truth in love. Grace and truth together. It just drives the devil away. There's really no room for him where temptation and accusation are undermined by the power of the grace of God and the truth of God, neither of which pivot. Verse 12. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. 
Not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. This is not just Paul's travel schedule. Listen. At Troas, things were cooking for Paul. Going well, gospel-wise doors opening, but Paul was restless. Paul says, I couldn't stick it out in Troas. I couldn't say I, I had to move on. Why? What's the problem, Paul? He says, well, Titus never came. So? What's, what? Do you understand what's happening that Paul's in Troas? And what he's saying is, I was waiting for Titus to come from Corinth to bring word about you. Paul was dying to hear how the Corinthian church was doing. How did they respond to his letter? Have there been any changes? Do, are, are, they, are they returning to joy out of sorrow? And Titus never came. And so because Titus didn't come, Paul was, well, he was distracted at Troas. He was unable to do ministry there. He had to go on to Macedonia. I point that out simply to say once again, Paul loved the Corinthian Christians. Even to the point that it caused him not to be able to do his ministry at Troas. And now suddenly he writes in verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Barnett in his commentary says the, uh, the unheralded introduction of triumphal imagery here is striking. Nothing has prepared the reader both then or now for this remarkable thanksgiving. And Paul goes on, he says, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Hold it right there. Perhaps you've heard some variation of this. There's all kinds of them out there, but there's really kind of one truth about what Paul is drawing off of. And the picture that he's painting here about God who leads us in triumph in Christ, that word triumph in the Greek is directly tied to the Roman triumph procession that always took place when a a commander or a general in Rome came back from a glorious victory. If he killed 5,000 men or more, they would have a triumphal procession through Rome. The general would ride on his chariot, His soldiers would march behind him. The crowds would line the streets and they would cheer and chant his name. Behind the marching soldiers were all the captives of the enemy. Chained up, dragging their feet, marching along the side. And along the sides of the street, up and down the causeway there, the priests in Rome would be carrying pots of incense and waving them back and forth and the sweet aroma of that incense would fill Rome as they marched through it in triumphal procession making their way all the way to Circus Maximus where the captives would be set loose among the wild beasts to fight for their lives until they died and that's the picture that Paul is drawing here And the contrast is amazing. The fragrance of victory. Man, if you're a Roman soldier marching behind your glorious general and you're smelling all that incense, oh, that smelled good. But if you were one of the captives, the smell was death. Because they were on their way to death. General Jesus went to war on the cross. He fought a battle nobody else could fight. He won the battle 
by surrendering Himself and giving up His life. And being crucified, well, Colossians 2.15 tells us He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. Having triumphed, it's the only other time Paul uses the word, having triumphed over them through Him. What Paul describes here in this triumphal procession, and we as the fragrance of Christ to God, to those being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma of death to death, and to the other an aroma of from life to life, gang, that is the proclamation of the gospel. That is the victory march that we are on. It is a life and death procession. And it is what I would call the paradox of the gospel because the gospel message of Jesus Christ to some people, man, it smells like life. It smells like victory. Why is it when you try to talk to friends or family about Jesus, sometimes they so vehemently push away? They reject it outright. It's because it smells like death. It's because it's convicting. And when they smell death, they recoil at that. I partially share that because as we march along a triumphal procession of victory behind General Jesus, we have been called, unlike the Roman soldiers, to have great compassion for the captives who are going to their death. To show love for them. To seek to release them from their chains so that they might smell the aroma of victory right along with us. We smell victory in the sweet incense of, as the Bible describes it, our prayers. Man, nothing smells better around here than people praying. That smells good to the Father. And as our prayers go up, it's a sweet smell of victory. But some people smell death. But in this paradox of the Gospel, listen to how Paul concludes it. He says, And who is adequate for these things? You know what that makes me think of? I'm a Roman soldier marching along behind General Jesus and I have no business being there. I didn't throw a spear. I didn't swing a sword. I didn't fire off a cannon. I did nothing. I just showed up. As a matter of fact... I was one of the captives. But General Jesus, He took the bullet for me and called me in among the triumphal procession of the soldiers so that now I march with Him. And He's asked me to do the same thing, but when Paul says, who is adequate for these things? We could all raise our hands and say, not me. Not me. I'm not adequate to these things. Listen. You don't have to be. And the honest truth about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it's it's been a gift given to us. It is something that we have received, not something that we've done. We don't pivot. We don't distract. We don't manipulate. We don't control. We simply and sincerely trust God to do exactly what He said He would do. My adequacy comes from Jesus Christ and Him alone. And in verse 17... Paul says, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. That's become one of my favorite verses in all Scripture. And a reminder that we are not here to sell the Gospel. 
I don't have to sell it. I don't have to dress it up. I don't have to make it look like anything other than it is. No hidden agendas. We just march on triumphantly declaring Jesus Christ the amen of our salvation.